0: it is great to be with you thank you for having me this morning my name is Sean as as uh, James mentioned and it is a great privilege to come and be with Summit Bible Church this morning I bring you greetings on behalf of the elders at Faith Bible Church we're just an hour south of here and uh, we celebrate what God is doing here in this place. And it is very personal for me because Morgan is a good friend, and it's funny because I would put him as one of my favorite preachers. He is a great preacher, a a great herald of God's word. He cares uh, about what God thinks, and he communicates that in a very clear uh, and passionate way. And I got to know him when he was in fifth grade with these little dorky glasses, he was a stick of a kid, and uh, watched as the Lord saved him in high school. And then set him aside for ministry. And what a great gift to the church that he is, and uh, we're so glad that he is here with you, and Bree, I always joke around in just a couple of, of uh, dirty laundry stories, but make sure when you, when you get close to Morgan, you look at his earlobes. Have I told you this before? Look at those earlobes very carefully, because you can still see where the diamond studs used to be. They still are open, and he, I think he can still get them in there, although when he became a Christian, he threw them away, but they're there, and he was that kid in high school. He was too cool for school, and thought... Uh, and thought he was all of that, but the Lord saved him and grew him. Anyway, all that said, um, thank you for having me this morning. Uh, just one note on what James said. I do have the privilege of serving as an elder and college pastor. Uh, I go to work every day of the week uh, in, in a business and uh, understand what, it's, what it means to live on both sides of that line, uh, to have a job and to seek to do that to the glory of God, uh, but then at the same time to be involved in his church and to, and to serve the Lord there and the challenges there that many of us face. Uh, I always call it carrying a bag because I've been in sales my whole life, but I'm uh, am, am really uh, glad to be here to open God's word with you. So with all of that said, would you go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 14, and we're going to look at the first six verses in John 14. I want to start by reading the text together. Jesus speaking, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here we are on the 4th of July weekend. We celebrate our independence as a country. We gather with friends and family. I know you have plans to barbecue, to hang out by the pool, to get sunburnt, to catch a fireworks show here or there, and to enjoy some well deserved rest and relaxation in the Southern California sun. We have much to be thankful for, don't we? And for a moment, on weekends like these, we like to put our troubles and our worries aside and get together with those we love and just enjoy ourselves. And, and think about the freedoms that God has given us, and then in addition to that, all that the Lord has blessed us with. It may just be, for you, a momentary respite from the worries and anxieties that lurk just below the surface in your life. On a daily basis, you and I are confronted with adversity, with difficulty, and even in pain in our lives. Certainly there are days and there are seasons when the, sh- the sun is shining brightly and everything seems to go our way. But there are also days and seasons when there is no wind in the sails and the hits just keep on coming. In Job 5.7, it says, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And in John 16.33, Jesus said, in the world you will have Tribulation. You pay your taxes just in time for the car to break down. Your extended family decides to stay for an extra week. Congratulations. You spill on yourself during lunch right before that important business meeting. You oversleep and you miss your final. The dog gets sick, so you kick it, and then it bites you. This morning, many here are carrying burdens, some heavier than others. You have smiles on your face, even right now I can see them, and you walked in, politely said hello during the greeting time, but you may be barely hanging on. Even if the water's up right now for others, none of us have to go very far to find the most recent trial in our lives. Could have been a traumatic incident, a breakup, an ER visit, a miscarriage, an unexpected layoff at work, Other times it presents itself as a dull, aching, lingering pain, a rebellious child, a chronic health issue, the prolonged pain of loss, or the feeling of failure that gnaws away at your mind. Sometimes life throws a curveball. Other times you feel like you're just bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders, and it fills you with anxiety over present worries and those future what-ifs. It was this same type of trouble that was brewing in the hearts of the disciples in John chapter 14. We are parachuting into this text, but just so you know, this is the last week of Jesus' life. They were in the upper room. In chapter 13, just one verse earlier, one chapter earlier, Jesus has told them, I'm leaving. Judas has gone out into the night to betray Jesus. Peter has made a declaration that though all others may turn away, he will not. And Jesus told him, you'll deny me three times before the sun rises. Within 12 hours of this moment, Jesus would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be convicted, and he would be hanging on a cross. And so he, Jesus, knowing their struggles, says to them in chapter 14, verse 1, look down at your Bibles, those first words, do not let your heart be troubled. That word there, troubled, can be defined as acute emotional distress. It is to be unsettled or stirred up inside. Have you experienced an unsettling event recently in your life? Finances tightened up? Boss made a comment? Found a lump? Have you experienced... Acute emotional pain, marriage on the rocks, loss of a loved one, long sleepless nights, lingering pain. One author calls it the dark night of the soul. In such times as these, Jesus, with a clarion voice, instructs do not let your hearts be troubled. It could be translated, set your heart at ease. Isn't that so typical of Jesus? He desires to give comfort to his people. He desires to ease our trouble and to settle our soul. And so he gives instruction in these six verses. And he tells us where we can find comfort in difficult times in our lives. There is one phrase that I'd like you to remember. It's plastered on both of these screens. This is the thesis and what we will work through in this text this morning. Comfort comes from Christ. Comfort comes from Christ. And in the, this passage, we'll see three ways that Jesus provides comfort in times of trouble. I've, I've outlined these so as Jesus speaking in the first person, and here it is. Are you ready? I'll give you all three. Jesus says, I can be trusted. Jesus says, I keep my promises. And Jesus says, I answer life's greatest question. And therefore, comfort comes from Christ. So let's dive in and we'll work this through together. Point number one in your outline, Jesus says, I can be trusted. I can be trusted. Look back at verse one. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You have here back-to-back-to-back imperatives. Do not be troubled. Believe. Could be on the side of a billboard, right? (laughs) Have you ever seen that? When your heart is troubled, when times are tough, his instruction is to believe in God, to have faith, to trust. The instruction is really simple. Believe in God, and then he says, believe also in me. Better translated, you believe in God, you should also believe in me because we are one and the same. Jesus is the personification of God, and if you've rightly placed your faith in him, you could also place your faith in me. Now, you'll notice in the text that Jesus doesn't elaborate on the why, he just says believe. It is assumed that the disciples already knew why. And it's also assumed, look up for a second, it's also assumed that you know why and that I know why. He says believe, and he is expecting us to understand the reasons why we should have faith and trust him. But I find in my own life that I often forget. I get into troubled times, and I let my circumstances and emotions swirl up around me, and I forget the reasons why I should trust God. And so with your permission this morning, I want to take a step out of John 14, and I want to give and just take a minute to tell you why God can be trusted and i think this will be helpful for us asked a different way what is it about the character of our god of our savior that helps us to trust in him and i want to just give you four things and i believe this will encourage and challenge your hearts the first the first reason god can be trusted is because he is sovereign god is sovereign that is to say it's a big word that he's in control of everything in job 42:2 job said I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel said in Daniel 4.35, no one can stop him. Jeremiah said nothing is too difficult for him in Jeremiah 32.17. And in Isaiah 14.27, Isaiah said, no one can frustrate the hand of God. Jerry Bridges, in his book Trusting God, made this statement. If there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, then we cannot trust him. But friend, every molecule in this universe is under his control and functions according to his plan. The psalmist said in Psalm 115.3 that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And so we take great comfort and choose to trust him because he is sovereign. Secondly, because he is good. God is good. In Genesis 131, he said that his creation is good. In Psalm 119.39, it says that his word is good. In Romans 12, 2, it says that his will is good. In James 1, 17, it says that his gifts are good. And so Psalm 34, verse 8, it encourages us, and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What a great truth this is. God's sovereign rule is governed by his goodness. And this is not a dash of good. It is not a sprinkle of good or a passing inclination for good. This is a goodness that is rooted in the eternal nature of God himself. This is who he is. This is what he does. One author said, in God, there is an infinite ocean of good. His thoughts towards us are good and only good. His actions towards us are good and only good. And he can be trusted, listen, because he is good. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? And we know that God causes all things to work together for, for our good. Right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In our darkest hour, we can trust him because we know that a good God is working all things for our good. He is sovereign. He is good. Third, God is wise. God is wise. Our wisdom is limited to our education and to our experiences. We can't predict the future any more than we can control it. And so we're prone to miscalculate, to misjudge, and to even make mistakes. But God, listen, God never makes mistakes. He never needs a mulligan. There are no do-overs with the Almighty. All His ways are perfect, and His plans are right. In Psalm 147, verse 5, it says that His understanding is infinite. And so we trust A wise God. A.W. Pink said God is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Christian, listen. God knows the hairs on your head. He has kept your tears in his bottle. He has numbered all of your days and he is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He has a plan for your life. And no disease, no sickness, no loss of a loved one, no broken heart or anything else is outside of his wise plan for your life. And so God can be trusted because he is sovereign, because he is wise, and because he is good. And let me give you one more attribute to complete this picture. We could say fourthly that God is love. God is love. One author said, it is not just that God loves, but that he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, but his very nature. God loves fully. He loves selflessly. He loves eternally. And he loves infinitely. The great theological work, the the Jesus, excuse me, storybook Bible, do you own that for your kids? It is one of my favorite books. This is how it defines God's love. It is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. No matter what circumstance of life, in sickness and in health, in pain and in joy, in youth and in old age, the love of God is fixed upon His children. Ephesians two four calls it a great love. Ephesians three nineteen says that it surpasses understanding. 1 John 4.18 says that it drives out fear. And Romans 8.39 says there is nothing in this universe that can take us and separate us from the love of God. Romans 5 describes it as the greatest demonstration of the love of God is found in that while we were yet sinners, finish it, Christ died for us. That is his love on demonstration. And so we see that God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is wise, and that he is love. And so we come back to John 14. And in the midst of your trouble, when your heart is bubbling over with fear and anxiety, Jesus says to you, I can be trusted. When we're at our lowest, God is there. When the walls around us crumble, he is our foundation. When the darkness will not lift, he is our light. When our heart fails, he is our strength. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because he is with us. When we're falling apart and we don't know what God is doing, we cry out like Job in Job thirteen fifteen. though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Charles Spurgeon, applying this to our lives, said God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. It's a good word. It's a good word, Christian. In, In your emotional distress, from your desperate state, when the road ahead is unclear, Jesus steps in and says, I can be trusted. And we see here, that comfort comes from Christ because of the person of who he is. Now, not only can Jesus be trusted, but secondly in your outline, he says, I keep my promises. Comfort comes from Christ because he keeps his promises. I want to move us on in the text, and there's a promise that he makes in verses two and three. I'm going to read it again, and I want you to see if you can figure out what this promise is. I'm going to bring it down to one word. See if you can find it. He says in verse 2: In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If I summarize this in one word, this promise, it is the word heaven. Heaven, that is the promise. His guarantee is unmistakable. Yes, I am leaving, he said, but I am coming back. And these verses tell us three things about heaven. I want to walk you through these three. The first is that heaven is glorious. Heaven is glorious. Look back at verse two. Jesus refers to this as, do you see those three words? My father's house. Now, it's not a reference to the temple in Jerusalem, even though in John chapter 2, he called that his father's house. This is a reference to the eternal abode of God in heaven itself. Now, you're probably familiar with a man named Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, probably the greatest investor in stock market history. He did his first, uh, what do you call it, tax return when he was 14 years old for his, his business delivering newspapers. I just read last night that uh, he owns about 6% of Apple. Apple just crossed the three trillion um, threshold for dollars in the company, bigger than any other company in the world ever, and it's grown 47% this year, and Warren Buffett it just looks like a hero. At 92 years old, he is still just going at it and knows what he's doing. He's worth somewhere around 100 billion dollars. Sorry, this thing is, uh, is beeping on me. Um, multiple times a week, he goes for breakfast on his way into work, even now, to McDonald's. In a 2017 documentary about his life, he said this, quote, $3.17 is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. But the market's down this morning, so I'll pass up the 317 and go with the sausage, egg, and cheese for 295. End quote. He once took his friend Bill Gates, another billionaire, started Microsoft, to breakfast. Excuse me, to lunch. Uh, when it was time to pay, he shooed Bill away, pulled his wallet out, and took coupons out at his favorite location, McDonald's, and paid for the meal with coupons. He bought his first house in 1958, a starter house, for $31,000. I did the math on it, the equivalent of buying a house for $330,000 today. He still lives there. There's nothing about it that says a billionaire lives here. He is living well within his means, $100 billion, but he doesn't show off with all of his possessions. I would say it's the exact opposite in the house of God. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and his house is comparable to his glorious nature. Now what do we know about God's house? It's described as a country in Hebrews chapter 11, as a city in Hebrews chapter 12, and as a kingdom in 2 Timothy 4. And the dominant image of the kingdom is the throne at the center of it. Revelation 20:11 calls it a great white throne. Revelation 4.3 says that there's an emerald rainbow that radiates from the throne. Referred to often in Scripture, it's a throne which both executes judgment and dispenses grace. And seated on this throne is the Creator, the Almighty God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's surrounded by countless angels who protect His holiness and guard the way to His presence. Those closest to him fly around with wings that cover their face and wings that cover their feet, and they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's Isaiah 6, 3. Paul describes heaven as a paradise in 2 Corinthians twelve four, And the author of Hebrews describes it as a place of eternal rest in Hebrews 4. In the Father's house, there are no tears. There is no sorrow, no pain, and no death. There is no sickness. There are no wicked people. There is no darkness. Revelation 21 describes it as a place that has no need for the sun because the glory of God provides its light. And while heaven is a place of eternal rest for believers, it is not a place with clouds and harps and halos. If that's the picture in your mind of what heaven is like and you're thinking, what in the world am I going to do? This is so boring. And everybody around you is, like, we're going to hell and we're partying down there with all of our friends. This is a lie and it's a complete flip of what's happening. In Psalm 1611, David says, In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, Just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not even entered into the heart of man, all of this God has prepared for those who love him. Make no mistake, heaven is a glorious place. We could say, secondly, heaven has room even for me. Heaven has room even for me. Look back at your Bibles at verse 2. Jesus says that in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The many dwelling places in verse two carries the idea of an extended household. Sons would grow up, they would get married, and they would add on with the Father's house at the center, and they would kind of go out in the sprawling compound. If you have a hamster, like I did when I was a kid, it's like that central house with the wheel that it, the hamster in the middle of the night as I'm trying to sleep is on, always running. It doesn't go anywhere. And then you go out through the little tube out to the next little room over here. It could come back and go out this side, of the tube over here, and it has all these different rooms. I'm not exactly sure that's what Jesus was referring to, but it has some bearing similar to that. The principle is that it's an expansive house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, with a big, big table with lots and lots of food, and a big, big yard where we can play. Okay, see? See, some of you were around in 1993 when that song came out. If you don't get that reference, um, go Google Audio Adrenaline and you'll find that. But look back at the verse. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. Now, I've always heard and thought about this as as Jesus is out building. He's got a hammer and some nails, tool belt on, and this thing, he's really dialing it in. 2,000 years, he's been working on our forever home. I submit to you that this is not a statement about construction. No, the preparation that he's talking about is referring to his betrayal, his crucifixion, His resurrection and His exaltation. Jesus in preparing a place for you has removed all barriers that would keep you from the Father. He has taken sin away and made it possible for us to enter into the presence of God. He appears as a high priest mediating for His people and interceding for them at God's right hand. In Hebrews 9.24 it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Can I I bring this home for a minute? Notice the last two words of verse 2. He says, I do this. Here it is. Are you ready? Are you looking at your Bibles? For you. It is for you. The place he's preparing is for you. For these men who have just been arguing about who is the greatest while the Lord of the universe ties a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and washes their feet. For these men who would sleep while he sweat great drops of blood. For these men who even that night would abandon him to save their own lives. For those who would deny him. For them, there is room. There is room for every son and daughter of Adam marred by the fall, for all who have come short of God's holiness, for those who have attacked his sovereignty, who have questioned his goodness, who have doubted his love, who have worshiped other gods, for those who continue in sin, the same sin, the same old sin, the shameful sins, the hidden sins, the repeated sins, the forbidden sins, the favorite sins. Verse two, he prepares a place for you. The wonder of heaven is not, oh, I can't believe he made it. Oh, sweet, she's here. Whoa, that's great. The wonder of heaven is that I'm there. This undeserved, wretched sinner who was slated for destruction until Jesus prepared a place through his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection, and his exaltation, and has entered heaven, and has brought everything out of the way, torn the veil in two, so I could come into the presence of a holy God. He did that for me. That's the wonder of heaven. Martin Luther describes this text, and he says, the best and most consoling sermon that the Lord Christ ever delivered on earth. This is it. Psalm 23, 6. We read it. Surely goodness And mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But mark this, he does not say I prepare a place for all. He says it is for you, for his children, for his followers, those who believe, those who by faith have come to the Savior. Christian, rejoice. There is room even for you. That takes us to our third little sub-point here. Heaven's glorious. Heaven has room for you. Third, heaven is intimate. Heaven is intimate. Verse 3 says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He came once as the suffering servant in humility bowed low. He will come again in the fullness of glory. Jesus is the darling of heaven, the center of worship and praise, and he will take his place at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3 says. And every eye shall see him, and every knee shall bow before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. In Revelation 5, verse 11, John, in this vision, says, I I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. This is looking into the future. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. John's been transported into heaven in Revelation, and he's looking at this throne room, and he sees angels that go on as far as he can see. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they're falling down and they're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. All of heaven is focused on his praise and his glory. And if you come back to 14.3, Jesus, gentle and lowly, says, I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Friend, we're not relegated to some corner of heaven. We're not just, whew, doors closed behind me. I just made it in. To the thief hanging beside him on the cross in Luke 23, Jesus said, today you will be with with me. You'll be with me in paradise. In 2 Corinthians 5.8 it says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Revelation 22.4 says that we shall see his face. And 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that we will always be with the Lord. It is a promise of intimacy. We will be with Christ. A.W. Pink writes this, lengthy quote, stay with me. That which makes heaven attractive to the believer is not that heaven is a place where we shall be delivered from all suffering and sorrow, nor is it that heaven is the place where we shall meet again those we loved, nor is it that heaven is the place of golden streets and pearly gates, although, out from the quote, it is all of those things. No, it is Christ that the heart of the believer longs for. Don't you see it, Christian? Don't you see it even for just a moment? Lift your eyes from your trouble and see your Savior and recognize that these light and momentary afflictions are producing for you a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, it was December 8th, 1941, Japan invaded the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge of the entire Pacific Rim, fought to save the Filipinos, but was quickly ordered by the president to leave the islands. 90,000 troops he left behind, people and family. It was his beloved place, second home to him. These men lacked supplies, lacked food, lacked support, and he knew that they would quickly succumb to the enemy. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press three words, I shall return. For the next two years, this statement became his mantra. He would repeat it at press conferences, often talking about it in his public appearances. He rallied support. He launched offensive attacks, always working to get closer and closer to his beloved islands. And then finally the day came. The president gave him permission. His forces invaded the Philippines. He waded to shore. A few hours later, he made a Radio broadcast. Here's what he said People of the Philippines, I have returned. And so it is with our Savior. He left his men, he endured the cross, he waded across the river of death, and he rose victorious. But he made a promise to those men, and he made a promise to his people I shall return. And so he will in all his glory. With all power and might, he will come back for his people and he will bring us home. And so, in the midst of our troubles, comfort comes from Christ because he can be trusted and because he keeps his promises. And that takes us to our final point. Jesus says, I can be uh, comfort comes from Christ because I answer life's greatest questions. I answer life's greatest questions. Look at verse four. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Notice that it's not Peter who speaks. He's stunned into silence by what happened at the end of chapter 13. Deny me three times. So enters Thomas. He's three times mentioned in this gospel. He's utterly honest, uninhibited, anxious, even pessimistic. He had a certain cerebral intellectualism. Maybe you're like Thomas. You're a thinker, you're an over analyzer. Glass is always half empty. You doubt before you believe. You always see the problems first. Ah, we look down on Thomas. This guy doubting Thomas. Thomas represents every one of us who in the midst of our trouble are discouraged, unable to see God's big plan, and so we question his promises. Have you been there? I have. In verse five, he asks life's greatest question. How do we know the way? How do we get there? Blaise Pasquale said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by the creator. This is the longing of every human heart. It's not about what you're gonna eat for lunch. It's not about what you're gonna do in your retirement. The deepest longing of the heart is how can I be made right with God? How can I get from here to heaven? How do I, how do I get there? What does this mean in my life? This, Jesus answers, saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The statement is declarative. It is authoritative. It is exclusive. In one sentence, Jesus shatters the worldview of just about every human being on this planet. It is not your good deeds. It is not your high level of morality. It is not that you're better than the people around you. None of those makes you right with God. Commentator Jim Boyce said, there are many offensive things about Christianity, at least for some people, but the chief offense of Christianity is its founder and his extraordinary claims. And I would agree with that statement. This is the sixth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. These are direct references to the deity of Christ. Do you remember all the way back in Exodus, Moses is walking along, And wait a minute, there's a tree on fire. He looks carefully and it's not burning up. We call it the burning bush. And the voice comes, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. And as he talks with God and God says, you will go and you will rescue my people. You'll be my mouthpiece. And he says, who should I say sent me? Remember God's answer? Tell them I am has sent you. These statements are are a, a declaration that Jesus is God. And there's three parts to his claim here. You see him there in verse six. The way, the truth, the life. Notice first that each of these is preceded by the word the. They're definite articles. There's no room for ambiguity. Notice also the word and that separates these three phrases, putting them on equal ground. While the way precedes the truth and also the life, it does not put either into a lesser position. But let me look at these three very briefly with you. First, Jesus is the way. He is the way. This is the simple teaching of the Bible. There is one and only one way to God. But that's not what our world believes. The epitome of this is Oprah Winfrey. Once on her talk show, she said, quote, one of the mistakes that human beings make is that there is only one way to live. But there are many paths to what you call God her loving and her kindness and her generosity, if it brings her to the same place it brings you, then it doesn't matter if she called it God along the way or not. There couldn't possibly be just one way, end quote. Mega-pastor Joel Osteen, largest church in America, was asked by Larry King, what if you're Jewish, as he was, or Muslim and don't accept Christ at all? Dancing, figuratively, Osteen answered like this, quote, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. Only God can judge a person's heart. I spend a lot of time with people in India, and I don't know a lot about their religion, but I know that they love God. I have seen their sincerity, end quote. Let's let Jesus speak. Matthew 7, verse 13. He said, the gate is wide, And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That narrow way is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is his death on your behalf. That is the only way. Not only is Jesus the way, but look back at verse 6. He is also the truth. We live in an age where truth is subjective. It's based on a person's perspective, on their feelings, on their opinions. You can be who you want to be. You can live how you want to live. I can't tell you what to do, right? That's, that's our world. But the Bible claims to be objective truth. Jesus claims himself to be objective truth, an unchanging a fixed reality that is the same for every man. He is the embodiment of the supreme revelation of God. In Revelation 19:11 it says that his name is true. The law was given through Moses in John 1:17, but grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. Jesus is truth and not error. He is right and not wrong. He is honest and not deceitful. He is straight and not crooked. He is sincere and not misleading. He is dependable and not disloyal. He is the whole truth about God given to man. He is the reality of God's plan to save sinners, of all of God's gift, of all of God's grace. He is the truth. And he is also, thirdly, the life. Jesus is the life. Our world is fixated on living longer, but death comes to all sons and daughters of Adam. This is the curse of Genesis 3. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. Separated from God by our sin, we are alive physically but dead spiritually. And left to ourselves, that spiritual death lives forever. But Jesus came. And in John 1, 4, it says that in him was life. In Psalm 36, 9, it says that he is the very fountain of life. Death could not stop him. The grave could not hold him. He is the victor. He is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head in Genesis 3. And in Revelation 21, it says he will wipe away every tear there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life and no one, excuse me, I'm, I'm in John 14, 6, excuse me. Jesus said, I am the, re- oh yeah, that's right. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even, even if he dies. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the last enemy that will be abolished, listen, is death. And if you go to Revelation 20, it says that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. You can live for money. You can live for sex. You can live for material possession. You can live for all that this world has to offer. They are shadows and they are dust. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life's greatest question How can I get to heaven? How can I be made right with God? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father but through me. We need not wander trying to find the way. We need not search high and low for what is true. We don't need to take elixirs and pills and eat cauliflower trying to live longer, right? Jesus comes to our world and he answers life's greatest question. Comfort comes from Christ. There is a way across, and it's through Jesus, and his declaration is that in me, like Noah sailed across that ocean of death in the flood on that ark, so we in Christ are saved from the wrath to come. Are you weary? Have you lost your way? Is your heart troubled this morning? Your Savior wants to speak to you. He says, I can be trusted. He says, I keep my promises. He says, I answer life's greatest question. And in all of this, he proves that comfort comes from Christ. And so it comes to this. And I take the ball and I pass it back to you. In moments like this, Everything comes clear as we sit under the teaching of God's word in a place like this on Sunday morning as we exalt the Lord and for a moment the fog lifts and it all comes out and we see the Savior clearly. You're gonna walk out of this place in a few minutes and the clouds and the fog is gonna come back in your life and your troubles that you've left behind are gonna hit you just as hard on the way out as they did on the way in. So I give this to you and say, knowing the greatness of our Savior and His care for you, will you cease striving and know that He is God? Will you cast your cares on Him because He cares for you? I finish with just a brief story. There was a French woman who was a young lady living with a pastor named Donald Barnhouse in Pennsylvania in the years leading up to World War II. In that family, she was introduced to what was called a promise box, They had written all the promises of God in Scripture on little scraps of paper and then rolled them up and put them into this jar. And on a nightly basis, sitting around the table with their kids, they would pull one promise out and read the promise of God, roll it back up and put it back in there. There were about 200 of these tiny rolls. Whenever they needed a special word of comfort, they would do that. It appealed to her so much that she made a promise promise box herself, writing out all those same Promises in French. In time, she uh, married, moved back to France, had a family of her own as World War II descended on the European continent. At times, food ran short. Her young family was near starving. In desperation, one day, she remembered the promise box. She put it high on a shelf. She reached up to grab it and accidentally knocked it over. All the promises of God came pouring out onto her onto her lap, and nothing was left in that jar. She had just prayed, Lord, I have such great need. Is there a promise here that is really for me in this time of famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, blinded by tears, all of the promises of God came washing over her. And she remembered in that moment, overwhelmed with joy, that the promises of God are beyond counting, that they were all for her, and that they were all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. For those of us who love him, it is not about a retirement plan with a sandy beach and palm trees that wave back and forth. It is the promise of being with our Savior forever. And in the moments of trouble, we are reminded that comfort comes from Christ when we trust him, when we cling to his promises, and when we hold to his provision for us. And that is a good word. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the time this morning in your word. Thank you that even in our darkest moments, the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize our insufficiency, our weakness, and even our failure in so many ways. And so we come once again to the foot of the cross, recognizing it is your provision for us that makes us right with God that washes away our sin, and that gives us so much comfort in times of trouble. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for a time to be around your word. And now as we come to your table, we pray that you'd be here with us as we celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.